0: We're up to chapter 1, Mishnah 17. I'll we'll read the Mishnah and give a little backstory of who we're talking about and then try to understand some of the lessons of the Mishnah. Shimon beno Omer Shimon, his son, says. So this is the son of Rabbi Gamliel, who was the author of the previous Mishnah. Kol yamai gadalti All my days I have been raised amongst the sages... And I found nothing as good for the body as silence. And the study is not the main thing, but practice is the main thing. And anyone who talks excessively, may whoever talks excessively brings sin. So, a really interesting collection of teachings we find from this Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel. Now, We're going back now to the middle of the first century of the common era. This individual, Rabban Rabban Shimon, the son of Rabban Gamliel, is a direct descendant of Hillel. And he is the Nasi, the president of the Jewish people, at a very volatile time in Jewish history. He becomes the Nasi at the year 52 of the common era. At the time, Israel is controlled by the Romans, And the Romans, of course, have been very brutal to us in our history, but they're about, like, they're only 20 years or so, 20 years or so before this tremendous conflagration that's going to consume all of Judea and amongst it, the destruction of the temple. And this Rabban Shimon, in fact, is going to be one of the people who the Romans select to assassinate because he's like the leader of the Jewish people. and But at the time that he's appointed to become the Nasi, to take over for his father, it's 18 years before the destruction, and the temple is still standing, and there still is a Sanhedrin, still is a, a Supreme Court of the Jewish nation in Jerusalem. Now, it's not in the temple anymore. It already left the temple grounds, moved to a different neighborhood in Jerusalem but it's still there. They're still judging capital punishment cases. Like there there still is a Jewish sovereignty to a certain degree over the land. Now, the Romans initially, when they came to Israel, they developed a policy of allowing the Jews to self-govern. They would appoint like a puppet who's like a king or a procurator or a proconsul, someone who was in charge of the local people, but they have to answer up to their higher-ups In Rome. And they had a policy. In fact, that what they would, what they used to do is they would take the sons of those proxy leaders and raise them in Rome. And the idea is, is we're grooming your children to be your successors in the ways of Rome. But really it was a veiled threat. If you play any shtick, if you try to coordinate some sort of revolt against us, we have your kids here hostage. Now, uh, the earlier ones were Antipater and, of course, Herod. But at this time, the Romans already, you know, the Jews are rebelling. The Jews are causing all kinds of problems, a lot of crime in Israel and Judea. And therefore, the the Romans decided to take over direct rule, which was very unique at that time in history. This is the middle of the Roman em- Empire. This is the era called Pax Romana. There's peace amongst the various far-flung parts of the Roman Empire, but Judea is a hot spot, and it's of course it's going to really rise a notch in the cities, and it's going to erupt with a Great Revolt, leading of course to the siege of Jerusalem and the horrific destruction of the city and really of the hopes of the Jewish nation, at least temporarily, and of course. temple. But at the time that the author of this Mishnah was appointed, the temple was still standing. And the Talmud gives us a few interesting stories about him and his leadership. We don't really know so much about him, but we know a little bit about him. For example, there's this interesting anecdote that we're told in the Talmud, the book of Sukkah, of how he would behave during the holiday of Sukkot, of Sukkis. Now, the Torah tells us that there's three times a year that we have to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Of course, Jews ideally should live in Israel, maybe even live close to Jerusalem. But of course, there's Jews living in the north part of, of, of Israel, Jews living in the south, and already the whole Second Temple era, there's Jews living in Babylon and in Persia and all kinds of places, Asia Minor. Jews are spread out. But there was these several times a year that all the Jews were encouraged, and it's a mitzvah, to appear before God in the temple to bring sacrifices and to have this touch point with the Jewish nation, the whole nation comes together several times a year. It's just you meet your cousins, and you get together, and you go back to the temple. And if you made any pledges, you fulfill your pledges because the temple was a was a bastion of charity. Everyone, if you're living in in Asia Minor. And you want to make a pledge to the temple you make a pledge to the temple you say i'm going to give i'm going to give a donation to the temple because that's the charity of the jewish people and then you wait until the pilgrimage you go with your family you travel you have these big caravans going to jerusalem and you go there during one of the holidays and you bring these offerings or donations that you had pledged over the course of the preceding months and years so there was an especially momentous celebration every year during the holiday of Sukkot. It was called Simchas Beis Hasho'eva, which means literally the, the joy of the house of Sho'eva means to draw, like you draw water from the well. And was this was a celebration? And of course, this is coming on the heels of Yom Kippur. Right after Yom Kippur, all the Jews, all our sins are expunged. They're all absolved. We're free of sin, and therefore we celebrate the holiday of Sukkos, which is, its nickname is Zman Simchasenu, the time of our joy. Everyone's joyous. Everyone's happy. Everyone's upbeat. Everyone's positive because now we're free of sin. And they come to the temple, they celebrate and they would have parties every night and they would draw prophecy. It was, there was a wellspring of spiritual power and energy available. In the temple, when the whole nation is there together, on the heels of Yom Kippur, everyone was able to draw prophecy, and they would have celebrations. And the Talmud says that Rabbi Shimon when he was together with everyone, he would juggle eight torches of fire to celebrate. If you have the greatest leader of the people, he goes in the center, you can imagine, maybe you could try to visualize this, in the temple. The beautiful, stunning temple that was refurbished recently by Herod. In the center, all the Jews are dancing. There's music playing. And then the great rabbi, who's also the direct descendant of King David, who's essentially the Jewish king, gets up, pulls out eight torches, and starts juggling them all in the air. Pretty cool. Just a nice description into the kind of world that he begins his reign. There's another amazing story brought down in the Mishnah about... I think it shows a little bit of his leadership qualities because in Judaism, the leader is viewed not just by their own personal accomplishments and abilities, but specifically how they treat their underlings, how they treat the people that they are in control of. And not just the people in the high society, but specifically people who are of the lower social strata. And those, the way the great person treats those people is really how they're viewed as a leader. And the Talmud says that we know that there's various offerings and sacrifices that are, in, the, in the, when the temple is, it, it is extant, temple standing, there are sacrifices that are optional and there are sacrifices that are mandatory. So for example, there's a communal sacrifice every morning and every afternoon. It's the first Sacrifice in the morning and the last sacrifice in the late afternoon. It's called the Taman. And that is brought from the coffers of the whole temple of the whole Jewish nation. And that's mandatory. And there's mandatory sacrifices on, on Shabbos and on, on festivals, etc. And then there are personal sacrifices that are optional. If you want to just thank God, make a celebration. You invite all your friends, you bring a sacrifice, a little bit goes on the altar, a little bit goes to the Kohen, a little bit goes to the Levite, a little bit goes to your friends. It's just a nice experience and it's optional. You choose you want to do it, you choose, you don't, you, you, if you want to do it, great, not, not. And of course, there's many, many, we're in the, the book of Leviticus now, we know there's many different kinds of sacrifices. Now, there's one sacrifice that a woman brings after she has a baby, that's mandatory. And there's other sacrifices as well that are similar uh, to that. When a woman has uh, a certain illness and she's healed from the illness, she brings a sacrifice. So the story goes that the, these birds that were used for these sacrifices started getting very pricey. And Rabbi, Sh- Rabbi Shimon he wanted to stop and intervene like this. Poor people, poor women, you know, the expenses of having a baby as we know. It's expensive. It was expensive then. And on top of that, they would have to pay exorbitant fees for these birds. And there was such a demand for these birds. Maybe there was a population boom that the supply was constricted. And the people who sold them were making enormous, enormous heights in the price. And it became prohibitively expensive to purchase these animals. So he came up with a solution. He comes into the temple. He goes where the Sanhedrin is sitting or he goes to visit the Sanhedrin and he tells him, I'm not going to sleep until I cut the price by a hundredfold. And he says, what do we do? And they came up with a loophole that said that if a person has, let's say, four or five different reasons to bring one sacrifice, it used to be they would bring four different sacrifices, but they found a halachic grounds to be able to give one sacrifice that would cover them all. And they made a new edict. From now on, we're going with this policy. And that, of course, cut the demand drastically. And by the time we went to sleep that night, the price was indeed cut a hundredfold, which I think is an interesting thing. It gives us a little bit of an insight and a window into what Jewish leaders, you know, the greatest Jewish leaders that we've had, how they operate, what are they thinking about? They're not thinking about their relationships with the other high society. They're thinking about how can I use my office and my power and my responsibilities to help those that are least fortunate. There is a uh, Hasidic sect called the Ger sect from a part of Poland called Ger, and they they were founded, this great Hasidic uh, movement was founded in the, Early parts of the 19th century, some of the great Hasidic masters were from the family, from the family and from the dynasty of the Ger Hasidim. Now, I don't know the exact details, but I know that every different Hasidic group has their own distinct way of dressing. Now, maybe for us, they all look the same. They all have the lawn payas and the beards, but there's, there's differences. The different size hats and different shapes and different this and different socks and whatnot. But the gerers, the ger chasinim, they wear what's called a spudik, which is more of like a, a vertical kind of hat as opposed to like the fur hats that they wear on top of their heads. It's not as much horizontal. It's not as broad, but it's more taller. Now, the story goes is that uh, the gerers, they were having a problem because the price of the spudiks were going up. And one of the rebbees, I don't know who it was, but there's a famous story. One of the ger said, Okay, if the price goes above $1,000, the second it goes above $1,000, I'm taking off my Spadek and all the Ger Hasidim will stop and take off theirs as well. And he managed to kind of an example of, of, of this attitude of Jewish leaders. He says, okay, if, if, if you want to gouge the customers, you're going to lose them all. And I think until this day, this was a long time ago, until this day, like the price does not creep above a thousand. It's maybe 995. You know, it's close because of course these are like fur hats that are very expensive, but it's within reason. And it's an interesting idea of, of how we look at our leaders and how we measure them by how they tend to the needs of the real people, uh, under their charge. Now this Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, he is known as one of the ten Martyrs. There was a very challenging, chaotic, painful, disruptive period in Jewish history sometime from the 60s to the 130s. And that's because the Romans were very, very harsh to the Jewish people. It began in the year 66. There was the Great Revolt. The Jews revolted against the Roman leadership because it was being very unfair. It wasn't providing any protection to the Jewish subjects. There was very harsh and punitive taxation, and they were goading essentially the Jews to revolt. And the Jews revolted. Uh, they thought maybe they would win, maybe like the Hasmonean revolt of several hundred years prior. Regardless, they were not successful. After a four year war, the Romans were systematically eliminating one Jewish town after another. Finally, they laid siege to Jerusalem. There's a famous story of Vespasian, the general who becomes emperor and his son Titus takes over and he completes the job. Uh, We meet the story, the last holdout in Masada, a group of Jews hiding in the desert plateau, holding out against their Roman conquerors. But really, like this war killed hundreds of thousands of Jews and the Romans were going up against professional soldiers that were going up mostly against civilians. The Jews were not even professional soldiers. They fought a guerrilla war and that really stamped a lot of the vigor out of our nation but the Jews rebuilt and 30, 40, 50 years later you have the Emperor Hadrian and the Emperor Trajan and they again institute very harsh decrees and edicts and punishments against their Jewish subjects. And of course, Hadrian goes on a rampage in the 130s that leads to the Bar Kokhba revolt, another revolt, where the the Jews indeed were successful in conquering Judea back from the Romans, uh, but that only lasted for several years. The Romans came back with really uh, uh, harsh battles and conquests that again rivaled the conquests of Judea of 50 years prior, uh, both in, in scope and in number of casualties for the Jews. But in, in the Talmud, the Talmud talks about the 10 martyrs. There were 10 great sages during this period from the 60s to the 130s, great rabbis who were assassinated in very horrific manner by the Romans. The very first one, the very, very first great rabbi who was killed, One of the ten martyrs was Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. And in fact, every year on Yom Kippur, during the Mus'af prayer, there is an ode to these giants, these ten martyrs, and essentially we're lobbying God, forgive us for our sins in the merit of these great sages who were each killed because of their Torah knowledge. And that, of course, is a great merit for the Jewish people when people die, al Hashem, they die to sanctify God's name, They, we try to invoke that as much as possible. Uh, of course, the great Rabbi Akiva, uh, he was killed in the year, I think, 136 or 135, somewhere in that era. He's also considered one of the 10 martyrs, but that began in the year 70 or so with Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. And in fact, the Talmud brings a very emotional, dramatic story. They kidnapped and they brought uh, to assassinate the two leaders of the Jewish people. Who were they? Number one, the Nazi, the president. Number two, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, whose name was Rabbi Rab- Yishmael. Uh, sorry, whose name was Rabbi Yishmael. And the story goes that each one of them is lobbying to die first because they don't want to see their friend, their colleague die as well. And in the end, they threw lots, they cast, casted lots, and Rabbi Shema Gamliel was killed, and they killed him very horrifically. Uh, however, as we are wont to do, the Jewish nation don't just keel over and die. Maybe the Romans expected that to happen, but that did not happen. The Jews rebuilt. His son, whose name was Rabban Gamliel, he took over, and the Jewish people lived on. Now, he's telling us in our Mishnah, a, some interesting ideas, particularly about the idea of silence. So he has uh, three clauses in the Mishnah. First of all, he tells him, he tells us that he inspected everything and all his days. He grew up amongst the sages, and the best thing he found is silence. That's the first clause. And the final clause is that lots of talking, excessive talking, brings to sin. So just as a general idea, this is a theme that we see. Throughout Jewish writing, the 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 virtue of silence in general. So, for example, Adam. So Adam is unique. Adam is special. Adam is noteworthy. Why? Well, what's what's what distinguishes Adam humanity from the rest of the animals? You know, there's no animal that's our size that can rip us to shreds. Like physically, we're a pretty mediocre. Animal. What makes us different is the fact that we're intellectually more capable and we're verbally capable as well. And there's a verse that we read in the beginning of Genesis where it talks about God infusing a soul into Adam and Adam became a living being. What does that mean? What is this distinguishing? accomplishment of Adam that he became a living so the commentaries tell us notably the Targum says that he became a speaking being. The fact that we could speak that we could engage in verbal communication and we could collaborate that is almost the fundamental human characteristic. And it's interesting when we're talking about the soul and how great our soul is it's connected to our power of of speech. And this is an interesting, we find this again many times throughout Jewish thought, this connection of the Jewish, of, of, of human soul with human speech. And what this is telling us is, is that our highest and greatest power and ability, our soul, that is linked to our speech. That's exhibited in our speech. And what that means is, is that it's, it's the most powerful tool that we have. And Perhaps we can even say the way my grandfather used to say this. He says, there's a representative of our soul in our body. What's the ambassador, the soul's ambassador to our body? That's our power of speech. That's what we're speaking. is that we're not engaging only in a physical activity, moving our mouth and our lips and our tongue and our guttural. We're actually invoking our soul. And that kind of upgrades the role of speech in our thought or how we should think about it. And as a general principle, because it's our soul that's being manifested in our speech, it makes a lot of sense to be told that we should use it wisely and we should even use it sparingly. If this is your soul, you don't want to sell your soul by talking all kinds of nonsense because what you're doing is you're taking your soul, which – is from the world of angels, it's from the world of God, and you're talking about just mundane stuff, that is a degradation of the soul, which is an interesting idea. It's not just, let's avoid speaking bad things. Of course we should avoid speaking bad, bad things. But silence is more than just the absence of talking. It is a virtue on its own because it is acknowledging the power of words and what really is... You know, what part of man, man is in mankind, is exhibited, is brought forward with speech. And you know, we have in this week's parsha there's a story of Aaron's two sons. So this part this week's parsha is Parsha Shmini, and it talks about the inauguration of the Mishkan. So in the book of Exodus, we're told Moshe is told by the Almighty build a tabernacle. And we're going to have a place for God to dwell in this world. Finally, the tabernacle is built and the seven days of inauguration. And this is the eighth day. This is the kickoff of the temple. And everyone's so much, the whole nation is buzzing. Amazing. We're gonna have God amongst us. And amidst this ecstasy, this joy, a terrible tragedy happens. Aaron's two sons, his oldest sons, these are the heir-apparents of Moshe and Aaron, they decide that they want to bring a sacrifice, but they bring a sacrifice that's a foreign sacrifice that God doesn't want. And they go into the tabernacle and streams of fire come down from heaven and consume their soul from when they kill them. And you can imagine the status of the nation. These are the next great leaders of the Jewish people and they die shockingly without any warning. And the Torah really points out what Aaron's response was. Aaron was silent. He was quiet. And Rashi tells us that as a result of his silence, because he accepted God's judgment without question, therefore, God said, I'm going to speak to you directly. It doesn't happen. God speaks to Moshe. Sometimes God speaks to Moshe and Aaron. But to my knowledge, i To my recollection, this is the only time I got speech directly to Aaron alone. Why did Aaron deserve such an honor of being the vessel to teach Torah to the Jewish people in this one law? Because he was silent. Now, I think there's a deep point here. Silence, when someone doesn't say anything, why, why don't they say anything? It's because they're unsure, they're uncertain. They don't have a conviction about what is right and what is wrong, about what is really going on. And I think this is an interesting idea. It's acknowledging, Aaron is acknowledging by his silence that he doesn't know why God did what happened, but he's not questioning it either. And this is maybe the pinnacle of a relationship between a creator with the Almighty and us. It's when we realize that God's calculations are unfathomable to us, that should immediately result in our silence. Because if it's if it's beyond you, if it's unfathomable to you, if it's way more advanced you could possibly even dream of understanding, well then what do you have? You have nothing. You have silence. But the silence in itself that demonstrates this bond between Creator and 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 a, and a person it demonstrates that the person is accepting and acknowledging that god is in control and god has very advanced infinitely advanced calculations and thus again this is a general principle that we see that silence is lauded as a virtue because silence shows that the person is accepting the fact that god exists and god is Omnipotent, which is another principle that we see again. In addition, I want to read to you a, just a line that I saw from my grandfather's writings that I thought was so powerful about silence being the ability to experience. He writes, this is, I'm just translating it directly from Hebrew. Whomever does not know the craft of silence does not have the ability to, To have experiences. He could see things and hear things that are beautiful and are deep and are profound and should really be awe-inspiring. But he's not inspired. He's not moved. And he has to speak. And he says, This is really nice. This is beautiful. This is good. This is okay. What he these things did not enter his heart like venom. Because if it did, he'd be silent. What it's telling, what he's writing over here is that for things to really penetrate, if they really penetrate and you really experience, whatever it is, you really experience something, then you don't talk. And I was thinking just like how our society, like if, if someone goes on a trail somewhere in Utah, a really beautiful place, And everywhere they're going, taking pictures, selfies, or going straight to Instagram, or whatever. But they don't just sit and absorb what they're encountering. It's kind of in one ear and out one other. It's in one pathway and out the other. It doesn't really – they're not not really experiencing what uh, what they are observing, which I think is an interesting idea, (laughs) principle again about the value of silence. Now, uh, another thing, and I think this is a little bit of a sophisticated point, humans don't, as a general rule, this is, maybe you want to disagree with me, but my assessment is, I think that humans don't realize the amount of ability that they already have. Just the how powerful their brain is. And I think that silence, when someone is silent about an idea, a concept, a thing, an experience, and they chew it over and they ruminate upon it, and they don't immediately blurt things out, they allow things to percolate within them, they allow things to, they allow their mind to engage with something. I think that really taps or untaps amazing abilities that people don't even know they they had and I think another as a, again as a general before we get to our mission a general value of silence is that it allows us to deepen our own ability that we have within ourselves in whatever we're doing. We have a tendency maybe even an urge to right away jump to conclusions and to give our assessment. And if someone asks a question, let's blurt out an answer. First thing comes to your head, which is valuable. It's good to have snap decision-making ability. You shouldn't have to think about everything so deeply. But that is always going to limit, it's going to cap our ability as a general rule to be limited to a very shallow part of our mind. However, if you take a question or a problem and you spend an hour really thinking about it silently – you're actually digging into your more powerful and profound abilities to engage with issues. And that deep work is actually going to be very much exhibited in your conclusions and your outcomes uh, from whatever it is you're encountering. Just another idea. So what does our mission say? Our mission says that this great rabbi who was the son of the Nasi, who himself was the Nasi, a direct descendant of Hillel, whose son himself, he was the son and his son uh, after him was also the Nasi. This is someone who's in the upper echelons of the Jewish nation. And his whole life, he spent them under the sages. The most incredibly gifted on one hand, but also accomplished people, consummate people of his time. And he assessed all the virtues and the one thing that he found the best is silence what this is telling us is is that this everything that we've spoken about now just the power that silence has and i saw the maharal one of the commentaries he said something very interesting he says that when you are speaking it's not exclusively your intellect that's operating Yes, of course, your intellect needs to guide your words, but it's also mixed in your physicality that's at play. This is, again, another idea that's off topic, but that speech is the intersection of intellect and physicality. To, to speak, it's, it's a hybrid of spiritual and physical. That's a general idea. But what he's saying is, is that it's it's not entirely spiritual. It's not entirely intellectual. And therefore, what he writes is is that when you're speaking, you're actually cutting off part of your spiritual pores, your spiritual powers. Your intellectual abilities are actually shut down because you cannot operate the intellect and the physical simultaneously. either, Either the physical is operating or the spiritual is operating within you. Can both operate simultaneously. And therefore, with speech... Because it's not entirely spiritual, it's partly physical. Therefore, you're actually when whenever you open your mouth, you're locking out a little bit of your spiritual power that you have within them. And according to this, it's interesting. If you read the words of the Mishnah, he doesn't say that I found the best thing is silence. He says, I have never I have not found anything as good for the body as silence. According to this, but this is telling us, according to the Maharal, what it means is, is that you have a body and you have a soul. And how you choose to operate or which one of these two identities you choose to maximize or to bring to the forefront is going to determine what kind of person you are. There could be people who are very physical, people very spiritual. And everyone really has a choice which way the one to veer. This great sage is telling us I have found nothing better for the body than silence. According to what the morale is telling us, what this means is, there's nothing better for the body than to be on the sideline and to be an aid to the spiritual, to be there to service the spiritual and not the other way around. We typically, by default, we view our body as our identity and our spiritual as something that's there to help us, to service us. But this is telling us that it's exactly the opposite. Our body is there to service our soul, not the other way around. What is the idealized location for the body in this balance between body and soul? The body should be off to the side and to be there to help and assist and support the soul, but not to demand that the soul helps and assists and supports it. (coughs) which is a very deep, a lot of very deep ideas that we're finding over here. In our life, we, we have two agendas. We have the agenda of our body and the agenda of our soul. And which one of them we choose to tend to and to worry about, that really determines who we are as a person. If we worry about what our body wants, and that's always at the forefront of our minds, well, okay, what does that mean about our identity? It means that we're living as a body. If we worry about our soul if we worry about what our soul wants and we're concerned with with its agenda, then we're living like a soul. What happens when someone dies? Body's buried, soul goes to heaven. If the person chose to live like a body, well their body's buried in the ground. How could they have an afterlife? Their body's dead? However, if they chose to live as a soul, well, the soul is still alive. And therefore, they could flourish in the spiritual world. So again, w- what we see here is like, what's the best thing for the body? Silence. Well, what's the best thing for the soul? Talking. Why? Because if the concerns of the soul is what you're talking about then you are choosing to live like a soul. If the concerns are the body where you're talking about, then you choose to live like a body. And what's the best thing for the body? Silence. Right? Don't don't worry so much about it. You see people who do renovations in their house. Even if their house is permanent, it's not most people don't live in their houses for a hundred years. Most people probably don't live in their houses for 50 years. So yes it's a permanent home, but it's just more temporary or it's more permanent, but it's still temporary. We are our souls forever. When people choose to say, I'm going to spend a year now thinking about renovating my house, what they're doing is this, it's like, your house is built in quicksand. It might as well be built in quicksand. It's it's temporary. If you know your house is going to collapse in a month, you don't think about, oh, should I put the painting over here or over there? It doesn't matter, right? It's like, those, that's the whole idea of the sukkah. The sukkah is the idea is that you're reminding yourself that our life here is temporary. So I'm going to leave my air-conditioned home and move into a little hut. This is my home now. Because really, it's the same thing. Amazing idea, we're told. Silence. That's what your body needs. Now, the last part of the Mishnah is a similar thing. It says if you talk too much, you might sin. Now, of course, all the commentaries give their own examples of how talk can lead to sin. Of course, we know that people who are chatterboxes, who love to gossip, that, of course, is one of the great, the, the grave sins that a person could do, is picking a and But there's many, many examples. Uh, and even someone who is, let's say, a, a great Torah scholar, and has to render halachic decisions, so that, of course, is a mitzvah, but if you speak too much or too excessively, or in a non-subtle way, or, or too hastily, then you're at the risk of rendering the wrong halachic opinion. I want to also quickly talk about the middle clause of the Mishnah. It says not the study is what's important, but the action is what is important. So it's not just about what someone teaches or someone studies, it's about how they behave. If someone, of course, they're a big preacher, but they don't practice, we all know there's something wrong with that. You have to practice what you preach. That's, of course, a general principle. But there's an interesting statement here that the Mishnah tells us, that you have speech, and then you have study and you have action. And what's the most important thing? The most important thing is action. And of course, it's very, very important for us to study. But the study is not what's the it's not. It's not the thing that's – it's not the goal. It's not the objective. The objective is the behavior. And I think this really dovetails with all the themes that we've seen previous. Who you really are as a person, that is something that is – not necessarily fixed. That's dynamic. That That is really what free will is. Free will is who you are as a person. Who are you? Are you an animal? Are you a body? Are you an angel? Are you a soul? Now, those are very different things. If I take an angel and an animal, they're the most different things that could possibly exist. We're both. We have in our body, we're an animal. In our soul, we're an angel. And therefore, because we're conflicted, we have the ability to choose one way or the other. And thus, what really shows, what demonstrates that we're living properly as a soul, as an angel, and not as a body, as an animal? That, of course, is our behavior. Everything, Torah, our intellect, everything that we got from the Almighty is there to lead us so that we behave in a certain way the way of angels. Now, how do we know how angels behave? How am I supposed to know? I've never been an angel. That is Torah. Torah is the manual how angels live, or how you, with the angel that you have within yourself, with the soul, what is the agenda of the soul? How do I start living like the soul? Well, read the Torah, and the Torah tells you. And that's each mitzvah. Each of the 613 mitzvos, is an instruction of how to behave in a given situation as a soul or as an angel that's what torah is torah is the manual to live as a soul and that's of course the greatest gift that god did for us he showed us you have the ability to live like an animal like an angel and of course the best thing for you both in this world and in the next is to live as an angel but how am i supposed to know to live like an angel from the beginning of my life, I've been wired by default to live like an animal, to live like a like a like a body, to live physically. That's where my senses lie. If someone goes twenty hours without eating, they feel grumbling in their stomach. If someone goes twenty hours or even twenty years without studying Torah, they can feel just fine. Problem is, we're bodies. We are animals. We are physical sensorially in our senses, and we're only spiritual intellectually, and with a lot of hard work. Therefore, the Torah is there to guide us, to help us, to achieve the destiny of living like an angel, living like a soul. And he tells us, do this, shake a lulav. And you're like, huh, why am I shaking a lulav? Why am I eating matzah? It doesn't make sense to you necessarily. Some, some of them do, but some of them don't. Why am I chewing crackers? Right? doesn't make sense to me. And the answer is it doesn't make sense to your body, but to your soul it makes an b- abundant sense. Your soul is wondering why you're sitting in front of a television. It's, it's as befuddling to the soul why someone would choose to sit and watch television. It doesn't make any sense. The body makes tons of sense, the, but the soul, it's totally perplexing. Why would someone choose to do that? And there we have the answer. The answer is because we sense our body, we don't sense our soul. How do we start living more like a soul? How do we start operating more like an angel? Well, that's what Torah is there for. And here we see this again in this Mishnah, a very powerful Mishnah that we see over here. Not the study is what's the itch or what's the goal, what's the end game. The end game is the behavior. The study is there. You study Torah, it's there to teach you how to live like an angel. But living like an angel that is indeed the goal. An incredible idea. Of course, it's not easy for us to absorb it because from a child, from the day they're born, the body has pole position. The, the body is the driver. The soul is, yeah, if someone acknowledges the existence of the soul, that's kind of like an abstract theoretical idea. It's not who they are. And We, we think of ourselves, and this is, the way the Almighty engineered us that our first priority and our first identity is the body. And we have to undo that. And the Torah is there to undo the incumbent. The body is the incumbent. But, of course, we're, we're taught in the Torah, in the Torah's lessons, that it doesn't have to be like that forever. We could change it. And, indeed, we're given the manual of how to change it. And, therefore, we're told here, what is the goal? The goal is the mice, the goal is the action, the goal is the behavior of someone behaving as a soul. That is the goal of it all.